What's happening, everyone? Joe here. In this episode, I got the privilege of chatting with retired Army Major General John Gronsky. John is a proven combat leader with more than 40 years of service in the United States Army. He is a proven leadership and peak performance expert, a motivational storyteller, author, and so much more. During our chat, we talked about authenticity, having an offensive mindset, his inspirational trip across country on bicycles with his wife and 15-month-old son, and much, much more. I learned a ton from this chat, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Live. Learning. Leadership. The Llama Lounge. Yo, welcome back to the Llama Lounge, a dialogue on all things life, learning, and leadership. This is Joe Bogdan, and I have with me another amazing guest, retired Major General John Gronsky. How are you, John? Joe, I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, hosting me on your podcast today. Oh, uh, thank you for being on. Um, just, I know we've had previous conversations, and I was just blown away by them, and I think it's so awesome that, um, that you took the time to be here um, uh, for our listeners, John is a proven combat leader with more than 40 years of service in the United States Army, including active duty and in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. He is a leadership and peak performance expert, a motivational storyteller, and a much sought-after speaker and leadership seminar leader. So uh, just, just so much goodness here, and I think we can take this conversation, John, in so many different directions, and we could be on here for like three hours or more, but, uh, but I, I, and I want to be very respectful of your time. Um, so we honed it down to a couple things, but like I said, I'm just so grateful that, um, that you're taking the time to be here and um, for all of our listeners at the Lama Lounge. Yeah, you know, you know, Joe, I, I just want to say that, you know, I've, I've listened to several of the podcasts and I've uh, been reading some of uh, the Llama Lounge leadership blogs and, and you guys put out some great content. You should be very proud of the, the content you put out and the, the leadership message that you get out there for other people to be able to listen to, be able to read. So thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That really means a lot, um, especially coming from someone um, with so much great experience um, like you. So uh, that really means a lot. And I know the rest of the team is going to be really excited to, to hear that. So, so, um, so before, you know, we get deep into some um, discussions on some great topics, like last, uh, last time we talked, I wrote down so many notes on things that you're just, just leadership gems that you're kind of dropping. And I wrote a bunch of notes. But before we get into that, we're about life learning and leadership. And I think it's really um, a great opportunity for for us to hear more about you. We'd love to hear, you know, how, how did um, John Gronsky become the John Gronsky of today? Yeah, uh, well, you know, a little bit about my background. Uh, you know, my father was a World War II vet. And uh, although we didn't talk a great deal, uh, you know, in, in detail about his service. Uh, he was very proud of, of, of our country and he encouraged me to, to serve in the military. Uh, so I had, I had that as I was, as I was growing up. Uh, grew up in a small town in Northeastern Pennsylvania. My dad, uh, you know, started his own business. He had a garage, used car lot, towing service. So I kind of grew up with a work ethic and uh, also a uh, kind of a, a feeling that you had to, uh, you know, serve others. And uh, joined the, the Army in 1978. Uh, you know, I got my commission uh, in 78 uh, from the ROTC University of Scranton and served four years on active duty. Uh, left active duty at Fort Lewis, Washington, moved back to Northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, somebody talked to me about uh, looking into the Pennsylvania National Guard. I really didn't even know what the National Guard was, to be quite honest with you, and uh, checked it out, uh, joined the National Guard, and continued to serve uh, as an infantryman. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to go to um, airborne school when I was on active duty, had an opportunity to go to ranger school uh, once I uh, joined the, the Pennsylvania National Guard, and then served in a variety of command assignments. Uh, and then, of course, you know, almost 20 years ago, you know, 9-11, uh, that's when uh, the operational tempo really increased for the National Guard. I had a, the honor of commanding a, a brigade in Ramadi, Iraq in 2005 and 2006, 
5,000 soldiers and Marines uh, in a very violent situation there, which I certainly learned a lot from that experience. It was a defining period in my life for sure. And then after that, had the uh, uh, opportunity to command the 28th Infantry Division, 15,000 soldiers, and then for uh, 2016 to 2019, uh, spent that last tour of my military career at U.S. Army Europe. I was one of the deputy commanding generals at U.S. Army Europe in Wiesbaden and Germany uh, during that time, which was, a, again, a very relevant time uh, because, um, you know, Russia went into uh, Crimea and the Donbass area of Ukraine in 2014. So the, the whole uh, effort was on deterring Russia. So it was really a very relevant time to be over there as part of the U.S. Army Europe team. So I, I appreciate that. And then I retired from the Army in, in June 2019. And since then, I've been running a leadership consulting firm. Uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a book that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Definitely. And um, have just been, uh, you know, really enjoying uh, being able to uh, work with various companies and organizations to help them develop better leaders in their organizations. Wow, that's awesome. And I mean, like, and, and I think that's what gravitate, you know, like kind of brings me to you so much because of, you know, a lot of the things that you're doing is lined up with, you know, the values of the Lama Lounge and, um, and, and your experience is just amazing. I, I, I love the fact that, you know, that you talked about when you're in Ramadi, but then also how that transition when you went to um, into Europe. And I got to spend some time there roughly around probably about the same time you were there. And I had, I moved there from Korea. So very, two different, very uh, different mission sets. And so much, um, when you're, when you're tied to the mission and you're close to it, it, you know, you, you know that you have your purpose, right? And that is so important. Like, um, I think that's the one thing that kind of um, makes it more difficult and maybe a little bit more challenging to lead in a CONUS assignment, you know, because sometimes it might be, not be that close to the mission and, you know, it, it might be hard to tie that to for your folks. But yeah, I loved being overseas. I'm really appreciated and hopefully I could get back out there again. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I had a great time over there. I, I traveled on business to at least 40 different countries, many of them multiple times over and over again, working with our NATO allies and other European partners. And what I took away from that experience is, is how much they admired the United States, how much they admired uh, the U.S. Uh, military. And uh, they, they absolutely see us as, as the leader and, and, and they want us to lead. And it was just such a great experience to be over there uh, interfacing with, with our allies and partners. Yeah. And, you know, and, um, and, you know, what kind of things did you learn from them? Right. I mean, there are so many, I always call it like peripheral learning. I was, you know, I was over there and just even just traveling, not even on business, you know, just kind of, I remember I was in Barcelona one time and it was like yeah. just a humble moment for me. Um, a waitress came over and spoke to us in English. She went to the next table, spoke in Spanish, went to another table and spoke in a whole, you know, a third language. And yeah. I was like, Wow. I, I mean, I don't even know if I've mastered English yet. Right? I was like, that was just such a humbling experience. So, yeah. so I think we, you learn a lot when you get to travel. And that was great that you had the opportunity to do that. And so, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so, you know, there are so many places we could take this conversation because of um, the experience that you have. And I'd be just but I would be remiss if I didn't ask a man with so much leadership experience about his views on leadership. We talked about a lot of things last time, just having a conversation. Um, and I, I almost wish we hit, would have hit record on that conversation because there was so much goodness that came from it. But I remember uh, when we talked, um, there was a point where we talked about authenticity and how valuable that is. And I was wondering if you can like um, share a little bit about your perspectives on how important authenticity is to leadership and leading such large groups of people. Yeah, you, you know, uh, followers have a way of seeing through the BS Mm -hmm. And and trust is so important when it comes to leading an organization or developing trust. The only way you can really develop trust is to be yourself, be authentic. Now, that doesn't mean you can't try to emulate leaders that you admire, but you have to do it in your own way. I mean, if, you, if you're not, a, you know, if you're not an extremely outgoing guy, you know, who, you know, loves to tell, you know, all these you know, jokes or stories or whatever, you know, don't try to be that way. I mean, just be yourself. I think what it comes down to, though, is and, and this is part of my this is my leadership philosophy. I mean, uh, my leadership philosophy is, is character, 
competence, and resilience. And obviously there's subcomponents of those three elements. But if, if, if you show people that you care about them, uh, if, if you show people that you're willing to put their welfare uh, ahead of your own, because leaders have to do that, and that's not a real easy thing to do when you think of it. It's an easy thing to say, but not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but once your followers see that you have their best interests in mind, uh, you could just be authentic and be yourself, and, and you don't have to worry about trying to be somebody else. Yeah, and how much, I found it to be, um, you know, I think you find authenticity. You're developing who you are as, as you're maturing. But I've discovered by seeing other people and honestly, probably myself um, experiencing it, is that when you are trying to be something you're not, it is draining. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's draining and, and it's really, you know, like I said, character is, is the, I think, the foundation of leadership and obviously integrity is, yeah. is part of character. So you're, you're just not displaying integrity if you're trying to be somebody else. You got to be yourself. And, and uh, it comes with, with, with time and maturity as, as a leader where you become comfortable in your own skin. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just uh, be comfortable being the person that, that, that you are. And, and followers respect that. that, that that's who they want. They don't want. They don't want somebody who's wearing a mask. Uh, they want somebody to, and, and, and part of that is, and I, I like to talk about this, Joe, vulnerability. Yes. You know, leaders have to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And what I mean by that is they've got to share a piece of themselves with their followers. And I don't mean you have to bury your soul or anything, but, mm-hmm. but you have to show your followers that you're not a robot. You know, you, you've got emotions too. Uh, you've got to uh, allow your followers to see that, hey, you know what, there's times in my life when I failed, you know, so I'm not perfect. And, and sometimes followers might think, especially if you're in a leadership position at a high level, uh, you know, followers may think, wow, everything they, they touched turned to gold. Mm-hmm. And they must never have failed at anything because they wouldn't be in this leadership position. But any of us who are leaders know that that couldn't <laughs> oh, yeah. be farther from the truth. So I think it's helpful to share those stories with our followers of, of times when we tried something and we failed, you know, uh, times when we, you know, we swung that bat at the ball and we missed. There's, uh, I, I think there's a lot of goodness in that. Yeah, I, I can't agree anymore. I mean, that is just, uh, I actually did a video, a short video, because a thought came to my mind about that. And I was like, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, we, we as leaders know that we're supposed to inspire, right? And then, but what does that mean? You know, and there's a lot of different, uh, people have different perspectives on inspiration, but I think part of inspiring people is just showing them a future that they can attain. And if you're, if you're just a robot or you're like infallible, people won't feel, they might be impressed, right? But they're not going to be inspired because they just can't do what you're doing. They, they won't feel they can. Yeah. And, and vulnerability also allows a leader to be approachable. You know, you don't want to be a leader where people uh, don't feel comfortable with approaching you. And, and you know, uh, Colin Powell had a great quote. He said, the day soldiers stop bringing you their problems is, is the day you stop leading them. Yeah. So you've, you've got to be an approachable leader where soldiers or airmen or anybody, you know, uh, mm-hmm. from a, a civilian perspective, you know, people who work in an organization feel comfortable but bringing their supervisor or their leader a problem when they have one, because the leader's job is to remove obstacles from the right. path of their followers. So followers could actually do their job. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the key uh, roles of, of, of being a leader is to remove obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I wrote, I remember um, I'm actually doing a lesson and I wanted to go back to a topic you just brought up about a leadership philosophy, but um, how a lot of times leaders are just overly reactive Right. And when we become overly reactive, we end up putting a lot of distress on our folks that they don't deserve or need. And, uh, you know, a paramount foundational leadership, you know, a, a purpose of us really is to remove unneeded distress. Right. Not all, you know, you want to put some stress on some folks for growth, but the unneeded distress that just comes from like not being effective, not being efficient is just terrible. Uh, it, it could cause so it can create a toxic environment on accident. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I like to uh, uh, say that leaders shouldn't be part of a flavor of the month club. <laughs> yeah. and, and by that, I mean, 
you know, you can't have a different priority every month mm -hmm. or every quarter. You know, you've got to set forth a vision, mm -hmm. uh, identify what the purpose of the organization is, and then um, develop some imperatives that the organization has to work within. You know, kind of give them a left limit and a right limit, and then let the organization go for it. Right. Uh, but you, you cannot be changing uh, imperatives on a monthly or quarterly basis. Uh, you, you've got to, they've got to be long-term because the worst thing, as you said, with the uh, thermometer leadership, I think you called it. Yeah. Yeah. When, right. Or thermostat leadership. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thermostat. Yeah. It's definitely more like, you, you know, you're influencing versus thermometer yeah. where you're just reacting to the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. Because there's, yeah. Thermometer leadership is not the way to go because right. again, uh, you, you, you don't want, uh, people in your organization become confused about, Hey, what the heck is the priority here? What right. are we supposed to be aiming for? It's gotta be consistent. Right. And then, I mean, I, I've seen that environment and then, you know, you're busy for eight to 12 to maybe 16 hours a day and you go home and you're like, what the heck did I do all day? I don't even know if I moved the needle. You, you know, that that's the definition of burnout. Right. Uh, th think about that. What the definition of burnout is, it's almost like the definition of insanity is, is where you're, is where you're working your butt off and you're just not gaining ground mm -hmm. and, 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 and to be working your, your, your tail off day after day after day and see that nothing is positively changing is, is very discouraging. And that leads to burnout. And, and, and as leaders, we've, we've got to create an environment where our followers could, could thrive in that environment rather than get burned out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and this is like a perfect segue to kind of go back to that leadership philosophy point you brought is I think if you lack that leadership philosophy, it can, you can become that, that uh, thermometer leader because you don't even know what your own core values are and what you find important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I tell a story where back when, I don't know, I was 20 years old, early twenties, whatever. I went to this dinner and the speaker was speaking about their core values. Mm -hmm. And after I left the dinner, I'm driving back home and I was thinking to myself, wow, that was a pretty cool speech. You know, I really got a lot out of that. And then I thought to myself, if somebody asked me what my core values were, would I be able to just rattle them off? Mm -hmm. I thought, no, I, I wouldn't be able to. So it took me about six months to a year to really think long and hard about what are my core values. And I actually, you know, wrote them down and, define them, and I live by them. And, and so I, I encourage anybody who hasn't gone through that exercise, yeah. go through that exercise of identify what your core values are, and it's probably between three to five or something like that. And, and then, you know, really, um, you know, strive to adhere to those core values, even when times are tough, because it's easy to adhere to core values when times are easy. Right. But when your back's against the wall and times are tough, that, that's the time you really need to rely on those core values to fall back on. Yeah, I think that's, that's so important. I think, um, you know, young leaders need to hear that because, you know, they might think, oh, I'm not in a leadership role to a point where I need to develop a leadership philosophy. I'm like, no, you, you should, because to me, you know, and this is just my personal perspective, a leadership philosophy is where your personal definition of leadership and your purpose and meaning kind of intersect, right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's where that happens. And I think, um, it kind of goes back to authentic, you know, authenticity that we talked about. I mean, it helps you live that line, that purpose as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be introspective. You know, you've got to identify what your core values are. You have to identify what your life purpose is. Uh, and, and, and as you said, that, that then all comes together and, and let's face it, everybody is a leader. Uh, even in the army. I mean, there's historical examples where a, a PFC has had to take charge of a platoon mm -hmm. in combat, you know, yeah. uh, when, when, when leaders, you know, uh, were, were not, you know, either got wounded or, or, or killed. So, and then the other thing is, you know, if you're not a leader of an organization or a unit, you're probably a leader in your, fa of your family. And if you're not a leader of your family, then you've got to at least lead yourself. Right. So, um, you know, everybody is a leader at some level. Yeah, I love that perspective. At minimum, you're leading yourself, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's very true. That's awesome. Yeah. So another, like, just kind of topic that we talked about in the realm of leadership um, was courageous decision making. And, and um, you mentioned having an offensive mindset. Could we explore yeah. that a little bit? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you've got to always be looking at the perspective of, of how could I influence the situation rather than be influenced by the situation. And again, just, just talking about historical examples, uh, Battle of the Yadrang Valley in 1965, Helmore, who was a battalion commander during that battle. Uh, there was one time during that horrendous battle when he just had to go set himself away from the action near this termite nest in Vietnam. And he thought three things, you know, what do I know, what don't I know, and what actions do I need to take to influence the action? So you've always got to look at that, that offensive mindset. You know, I, I remember a day in Ramadi where I had uh, five of my soldiers killed in one uh, improvised explosive device attack. They were in a Bradley fighting vehicle. Mm. And it was a, a horrendous uh, day for that particular battalion. But I got with the battalion commander the next day. And I, and I said, you know, uh, we, we've got to come up with an operation for your battalion uh, to... Uh, and basically what we came up with was a cordon and search operation. It wasn't heavy handed or anything, but the point was, wasn't that there was necessarily tactical value from that operation, but it got everybody in his battalion uh, taking action in an offensive way, you know, mm -hmm. rather than just sitting back and, and waiting for another attack to occur. So uh, I, I do think leaders have to encourage their organization, especially during a setback, to, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? What do we need to do influence the action? And, and then take that, that, that step into that offensive mindset and, and, and make things happen. Uh, there's another quote that I love. Leaders dispel uncertainty through action. Mm. You know? and, and if you're a leader and you're just kind of floundering and not, and not uh, setting forth a forward direction for the organization, people are going to get discouraged. Uh, people are going to uh, take on that that mental uncertainty that you don't want you know followers to have. So you've you've always got to be setting forth a, a a path to move forward rather than just just some type of static path. Yeah, I, I mean, I 100% agree with that. And I think um, it's challenging though, also because there's risk involved, right? Mm -hmm. As a leader, and I think sometimes. You know, I remember uh, I was reading um, General Mattis's book and he was talking about uh, institutions get what they reward. Mm -hmm. And you can take that statement and put it in so many different realms, right? But when it comes to risk or being risk averse, sometimes I think people, leaders feel like they'll be rewarded if they don't make mistakes. Yeah, unfortunately. And I, I think it all comes uh, down to how, what type of environment that their leaders set. You know, when I took over command of the 28th Infantry Division, I put out this guidance and, and one of the statements I, I wrote something to this effect that um, displaying initiative is worth the risk of making honest mistakes mm. because I, I believe initiative has to be shown when you're in combat uh, because there's going to be situations where you don't have necessarily direction from the tower. So you have to go within the commander's intent. And I believe we have to allow our, and again, I'm talking military here, right. uh, but you could, you could uh, apply this to civilian organizations too. But, you know, you have to allow your, your soldiers or your followers in a civilian organization to display that initiative during steady state conditions. Because when you get into a crisis, <laughs> You know, many times, you know, there's going to be so much going on that the leaders aren't going to be there to give specific direction. So if you allow your subordinates to display initiative during steady state or in, in the military parlance, you know, training, then in combat, they're going to be used to displaying that initiative. And, and I think organizations thrive when they have people at all levels of the organization who feel comfortable with displaying that initiative, knowing that if they make an honest mistake, mm -hmm. the leaders aren't going to chop their legs out from underneath them. Uh, yeah. So I, I really think it's all about how leaders set those conditions uh, to allow that to happen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because the, the, when a leader is ultra risk averse, there are, I mean, the, the negative impact it has on that leader's subordinates is is like exponent. They, they have no idea what kind of impact that really has all the way down to the bottom level. You know, they can't even see the impact. 
Yeah, yeah. No, nobody wants to be in an organization where you feel you have to walk on eggshells. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, in the in the military though, uh, Joe, I I really think uh, you know we are used to doing doing dangerous things safely, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Whether that be in training or whether it be in combat. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Air Force and the Army, we do a lot of dangerous things in a training environment and also in combat. But we we are trained to do those dangerous things safely. And, and uh, you know, we, we are used to assuming risk in the military. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you have to identify risk and then identify, hey, what's the probability of that risk happening? What's the impact of that risk occurs? And then take steps to mitigate that risk. So to lower the probability or to lower the impact, but there's still gonna be some risk out there. Right. Uh, so, and, and that's just environment that, that, that we live in in the military. And I think even a lot of civil, civilian companies, whether it be construction, whether it be you know drilling oil fields or whatever, there's a lot of ways in various civilian industries that get hurt out there. Right. Uh, but you've just got to do your best to mitigate risk and then have, have the courage to make a decision. Uh, because some leaders don't have the courage to make decisions. And, and, that, and that's, again, uh, where organizations could flounder and fail if you don't have leaders who have that courage to make decisions with less than perfect information. Right. And I think that's the, the big challenge. And I think I've seen it go the other way, too, where um, people assume risk at the wrong level. Like this is wasn't your risk to assume um, sergeant. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it's very and then they take it and you're like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You should have radiated that up the chain. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And again, you have to uh, understand what those factors are for sure. And uh, and that's where leaders have to be available. I mean, just because you give your followers the intent, you know, meaning, hey, you know, this is the overarching purpose uh, doesn't mean that you just, you know, uh, walk away. You know, you, I, I like to say you don't throw the sack over the wall and then just walk away as a leader without micromanaging. You've got to make yourself available to check in, make sure, hey, does that, does that follower, does that subordinate leader need a little bit of guidance? Mm-hmm. You know, because they may not have as much experience as you are. So it's not micromanaging, but it's being available to provide additional guidance when that subordinate leader needs that additional guidance. Yeah, and, and, and circling back to the vulnerability piece, I think it's um, showing that you as a leader don't know everything, I think is more likely to, you know, to inspire your people to tell you that they don't know something instead of everybody acting like they know everything. Exactly. And and the way I've always led was, um, you know, I, I really, because I realize I'm not the brightest guy in the room and, 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 uh, you know, always like to ask opinions of, of my subordinate leaders or, or subordinates within the, whatever organization I'm in to get, to get their opinion on, on, on stuff. And, that doesn't mean I have to agree with their opinion. That doesn't mean I have to follow their recommendation, but at least ask them that. And I'll tell you another thing, Joe, when, when you ask your followers what their opinion is, you show them a great deal of respect by doing that. Yeah. And you actually show them a great deal of empowerment because no, no follower likes anything better than who, their, their leader asking them what their opinion is and then honestly listening to it. Right. You know, and I'm I'm sure you feel good when whoever you're working for ask 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 your opinion. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it shows somebody respect. It shows somebody that that you you value what 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 their experience is is, is all about. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think um that the the key component that you brought up though is honestly, you know listening to it with, you know, with yeah. some honest curiosity, you know, like actually listening to it, because I think some people, it's not authentic when you ask people's opinion, but you're not even going to listen to it, you know, and it happens. It seems like it happens very often. Yeah. There's certain things you have to do uh, when you're in an environment where you're asking somebody's opinion. I mean, certain mechanical things, yeah. you know, put, put your phone down, right. You know, close the cover on your laptop computer. You don't want to be asking somebody's opinion and then you're checking your email on your phone or else you're writing an email on your computer as they're speaking to you. So you, right. you've, you've got to do certain things like that to show people that, hey, I'm really listening to you. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe take a couple of notes. And, and uh, the other thing is follow up. You know, if somebody makes a recommendation 
and 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 you don't necessarily take that recommendation, isn't it nice to be able to get back with that person and say, you know, I decided on going in this direction, and that's why. I mean, it just makes people feel good. Now, hey, there's there's some crisis situations where you can't do that immediately, but in in most of the steady state situations we're in, you could. Yeah, and, and and yeah, like that that providing closing that loop with that feedback. I think that's like probably the number one missed thing that happens when you have opportunities and people just don't do it. And I think some of it has to do with they just don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation. Um, some of it just busy, forget, and not a priority. I mean, there's so many things that go with that. Yeah, you know, so it's easy to say, you know, caring about your followers is part of your leadership philosophy, but it's, it's hard to actually exemplify that. And that's, and that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. By following up with people, you're showing that you care about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. I was like, just because something simple doesn't mean it's easy. You know, <laughs> Yeah. there's, there's so many things like that. Like, Hey, if you, if you know that if you take less calories in, than you burn, you're going to lose weight. That's simple. Right. It was like, it's really hard to actually do that for people. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, and, that's, and that's where self-discipline comes in. Yeah, which is vital to everything and instilling discipline uh, in, in folks. Yeah, I think that's that's really, that's that's all, um, such an important thing. And I remember um, a former commander of mine said something, kind of going back to the whole thing about allowing mistakes. And he said, everybody's allowed to make mistakes, but it should be mistake. They should be mistakes commensurate with where you are. So if you're a, a general officer, you shouldn't be making a lieutenant mistake. Or, you know, and if you're yeah. a senior non-commissioned officer, you shouldn't be making airman level mistakes. And I think that was such a valuable uh, just comment that he made. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, a, a big thing we talk about is mistakes of character. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've heard some officers say, hey, I'm not going to accept the mistake of character from anybody, no matter what their rank is. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily follow that. I mean, you know, a lower ranking enlisted guy or even a second lieutenant just coming into the officer corps might make a mistake of character that you could counsel them on and and help them get get beyond. But if 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 somebody, you know, a colonel or a general makes that same mistake of character, for sure that's right. not acceptable. And the same with a senior NCO. Yeah. You know, there, there's certain mistakes you could accept from somebody with a heck of a lot less experience than you could with somebody with, with, with years of experience. And whether that be a mistake of character or, or other types of mistake, uh, mistakes one, one make. But you're, you're spot on with that. You know, it all depends what your position is and what your experience level is. Yeah, I mean, you, you made a great point because, you know, that second lieutenant coming right out of school or that, you know, uh, private first class, whatever, at that age, that might be, their brains are still forming. They, you know, right and wrong is still like being developed in that brain. So it's, it's something that we really do got to consider. I was a knucklehead when I was that age. I know I was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was too. And, and I, and I think one of the reasons I could forgive people of making honest mistakes is because I made plenty of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, just, just coming from my own experience, I know, you know, people are prone now and then to make an honest mistake. And again, um, not, not to say, you know, uh, mistakes of character, but just, just other type of mistakes that one may make. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect, like, uh, a transition to something I read on um, your website, I believe it was in one of your articles. And you wrote, a great leader doesn't need to be great all the time, just when it matters. And I was hoping that maybe we could dive into that one. Joe, you know, it is uh, June 6, 2020. We know the type of struggle our, mm -hmm. our country is going through right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, first with the uh, COVID-19 and now mm -hmm. with all the social uh, unrest and justified social unrest. I mean, mm -hmm. right. uh, the rioting isn't justified, but, but the protesting certainly is justified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now is the time, I, I, I think, where that little quote of mine really uh, yeah. speaks volumes. Uh, this is the time when you need leaders to be great. You know, steady state operations are steady state operations. But when, when you're in the midst of a crisis, that's where you need leaders to step up and, 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 and really earn their pay. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, George Patton wrote a book, War As I Knew It. And I think the last chapter of his book 
the chapter says, you know, when I earned my pay, and he has a whole bunch of little vignettes about things that happened when he earned his pay as a leader, wow. you know, which doesn't necessarily happen every day. Right. Uh, but a leader really has to be great when there's a crisis. And, and the, the caveat to that is, is you've got to set conditions within your organization that would allow you to be great. By that, I mean, you know, if, if, if you have not established um, a climate of trust in your organization where your followers trust you, when there's a crisis and now all of a sudden you try to be this trustworthy person that you want everybody to kind of be inspired by, ain't going to work. You know, you've got to set those conditions during steady state. So when there is a crisis, you know, you, you've set those conditions where people do see that, hey, I, I care about you. I truly care about you. You know, I, 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 I want to inspire you. You know, I'm, I'm character based. If, if you don't do those things beforehand, when there's a crisis, you're not just going to be able to turn it on and people are going to listen to you. And again, I think we're seeing a little bit of that today. Yeah, absolutely. And at every level, you know, uh, yeah, I, I know that um, these are definitely challenging times. And I think back to the vulnerability piece, I think a lot of um, a lot of leaders at various levels are having a hard time because they they have a hard time telling people, I don't have the answers to all of this. You know, I think I think some people have that issue and that's why they're not having the conversations that need to be had right now. Yeah. And, you know, when you don't have the answers, doing nothing because you don't have the answers is not acceptable. You know, that's where you get people around you who might have portions of the answer. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you have to have the courage to make decisions with less than perfect information. You're not always going to have all the answers and you still got to make a decision. Right. Um, and I think it was Harry Truman who said uh, that making a poor decision is, is better than making no decision, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes. Uh, you know, you, you've, you've got to do something to, to move that organization forward. And, and you've got to be willing to get the counsel of people around you, because like you said, we don't know everything. And then even with less than perfect information, we got, we got, we got to take some type of action. Yeah. And, you know, I love what you kind of brought up about earning the, earning the pay, right. As a leader. And, and I think all of us, if we really look into it, it's like, there are days that we don't necessarily earn that pay as a leader, right. Um, you're, you're yeah. really, uh, cause you're not challenged that day maybe, but what, yeah. what, what I've really discovered, um, and I can't remember where I read it. It was in a, it was probably during my grad classes, but it was talking about, um, you know, leaders, the higher you move up on the leadership chain, the more you do hard work versus long work. And when you're lower yeah. on the chain, you're doing more of the long work. It might, you might be out there shoveling, you know, building, uh, digging a ditch. But as much as that might be physically challenging, it's not like mentally challenging. But when, like me as a leader, and I'm sure you experienced it quite a bit, you might have only three issues that you have to deal with that day. But they're all like backbreaking issues that don't have a right answer. And it's just exhausting, right? And that's when you earn your pay having to make those decisions. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that's important, you know, especially a senior leader, you shouldn't get involved with decisions that could be, that could be made below your level. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, don't spend the energy there uh, because it does take a lot, you know, it takes a lot of energy when those, those decisions come up to your level that you have to make. And the reason they're at your level is because nobody at a level below you was, was able to make that decision. Right. You know, so that's what you're there for. So, you know, uh, you, that, that's what I mean by leaders don't need to be great all the time, but they have to be great when it matters because, you know, on good days, followers don't really need a leader. You know, things are going smooth and things are going along pretty, pretty well. It's, it's, it's in those times of crisis where followers do need that leader to be strong. Yeah, that, uh, that's such a great point. I talked to, uh, I, I remember I did a short video cause I was listening to a podcast one time and, um, and an actor was talking about when he was a child actor, um, the director, he remembers the director would just freak out whenever the, anything didn't go perfectly. He would just wig out about it and just lose his mind on everybody. And then when he became older and he became, an, he was an actor, but then he also became a director and, he, and his stuff wasn't going right. And he was like, the only reason I exist is when things don't go right. I mean, like if everything was going right all the time, then you wouldn't even need a director. You have writers, you have producers, you have every other position here to make the movie happen. I'm literally here only when, for things that don't go right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point, you know? And uh, so, so that, that, that's when you've got to step up to the plate and earn your pay. 
Right. Absolutely. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so transitioning a little bit from the leadership talk, cause we could talk about this for hours and I would, and I know that I'd be getting a lot poured into me from, from you, John. I mean, the things that we just talked about, I gained a lot already. Uh, but we also want to talk a little bit about learning because at the Llama Lounge, we're talking, we were about life learning and leadership, right? So but, uh, on the learning point of it, you wrote an amazing book and I, I, I bought it. I read it and um, for our readers, I mean, for our listeners that aren't like necessarily readers, this is not a, a hard book to get through. Uh, very, very easy read with so many great nuggets of just, just, you know, value added wisdom in this book. And so this book, um, uh, the ride, the ride of our lives, like lessons on life, leadership and love. And we'll put this in the show notes as well for the show. Um, it, it, it talks about your trip with what start when you started with your wife and your 15 month old son from Washington state on a, on bicycles all the way to Pennsylvania. And I'm like, first thing that I thought was why, why would someone do this when I heard this story? But, but as I read this, the book, which I highly recommend anybody read this from leadership, just to just inspiration. Um, what, what what was going through your mind? Can you explain that a little bit about you know the whole trip? What was that? What was the genesis of this trip? Yeah, you know when I was you know in 1976, I was 20 years old and started to hear stories about people bicycling across the country, kind of to commemorate the bicentennial. Mm. So there was this route from Oregon to Virginia called the Bike Centennial Trail, oh. and uh, I just got captivated by those those stories of, of adventure, these people using human power to, to bicycle across the country. And, you know, even as a kid, I was always kind of drawn to uh, things like the Lewis and Clark expedition and all those, you know, stories of adventure. And I thought to myself, man, you know, I would love to do that someday. And so, um, you know, I always tried to stay physically fit and active and, and, and all that. And when I left the military at Fort Lewis, Washington, 1982, my wife and I worked up there for you know several months until we we decided that we wanted to move back to northeastern Pennsylvania. And then I said to my wife, you know, man, I always wanted a bicycle across the country. This could be an ideal time to do it because we're already we're already on the the west coast. And um, she agreed. And and uh, so you know we had we had a a baby, you know, about a year old when we made the decision to 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 take the trip and and uh, bought a bicycle trailer that we could uh, transport our son, Stephen in. And then uh, when we started a trip in late May, 1983, uh, you know, Stephen was 15 months old at the time. It took us three months on, on the road, uh, over 4,000 miles with the route we took. It was all self-supported, which meant we didn't have some type of van following us. You know, we had all our gear. Mm -hmm. Two man backpacking tent, two sleeping bags, a little one burner camping stove to cook to cook chow on in the morning, and uh, just just went on this fantastic adventure where we met so many wonderful people, uh, just average Americans across the United States, who many of them opened up their hearts and their homes to us. Uh, we camped in a variety of places, you know, in a farmer's field behind churches, behind schools, you know, campgrounds when we could, town parks. Stayed in uh, college uh, fraternity houses a couple of times and, and really just had this wonderful experience. It did have its physical challenges, you know, crossing mm -hmm. the Cascades in Oregon and the Rocky Mountains and, you know, 115 degree heat in Pueblo, Colorado, and then the winds of Kansas and the Ozarks of Missouri <laughs> and finally the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, and, and, you know, Stephen plus his trailer plus the gear you need to take care of a baby okay. uh that added about an additional 80 pounds of weight to what i had all but it was just it was fantastic we we had such a wonderful time i learned so much as as the subtitle implies about about leadership about life ab about love meaning uh you know me and my wife and, and our son we did it as a family uh so just just what that uh family love was all about so it was it was an amazing journey that I kept a journal uh, when we took that trip in 83. Again, an analog world, 1983. <laughs> you know, no Google, no internet, no cell phones, none of that, no GPS. And uh, 
and I kept this journal and that journal sat in a shoebox for over 35 years. Wow. And then when I retired from the army in June, 2019, I was talking to my younger son, Timothy around a campfire and he wasn't even born yet when we took this trip with Stephen started asking me questions about the trip, which for some reason I never really talked about that much, but he was asking me questions and he said, dad, you should write a book. Mm. And then my wife said, you know, John, you should write a book, you know, just if nothing more for the kids and for the grandkids, you know, yeah. so they kind of understand what that trip was about. And I had this journal. So I relied on the journal and the scrapbook and, and put the story together, which became this book that uh, I'll tell you, a lot of people love. I really appreciate your comments. Thank you for saying such nice things about it. But I've been getting those comments from many people. And uh, I'm just happy that I was actually able to write something that people seem to be inspired by and, and seem to be able to get some good takeaways from. So I, I'm, I thank God for that. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is, I mean, going back to the vulnerability piece, you talk about every mistake you made on that trip. And I'm like, you know, and, and there was plenty of them and you learned so much from those. And I'm just like, that's really cool that, you know, that it's like open kimono, like here, this, oh, what, this is what I did wrong right from the beginning of the trip, you know, like how many adjustments yeah. you had to make. Uh, and, and, I was, and I was like, that is so cool that, you know, I learned a lot just from that, just under, just listening to um, our reading, um, you know, the stories of how, okay, the man made a mistake right there. Okay. Now he made an emotional mistake, you know, or yes, there he made yes. a, he made a, a technical mistake, <laughs> but, but you always reconstitute your equipment and your mind and move forward still. And, and, and with your family too, with the supportive family and them doing it too. I think it was just, that was just amazing. That's what I, I, I would say if I had to take something from that book, and there's so much in there. If I had to like just pinpoint something, it would be that. It would be the fact that, you know, we, we, can, we can adjust, we make mistakes and move forward. Yeah, yeah, you got to. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on resiliency. I'm a big mm -hmm. believer uh, in resiliency. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that trip exemplifies resiliency because uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of times we could have just quit and right. jumped on a Greyhound bus and taken a bus the rest of the way home. Mm -hmm. But uh, to tell you the truth, quitting never really crossed our minds, and it was some challenging times. We, some, sometimes we would get a little bit of cranky with one another, <laughs> but uh, it, it was, I, I really think, uh, it really taught, taught me a lot about resiliency and about having positive energy, uh, about being fit, not only physically fit, but mentally fit, emotionally fit. And then uh, also just being able to overcome adversity. And I think those three things are really what what define resiliency. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading that, I never at one time thought that, you know, you, you had a thought of quitting either. Like when I was reading through the story, um, I think the hardest part was probably getting started. And I think that's so common with a lot of things. Yesterday I was looking out the window and I needed to go for a run. And usually I run between five and six miles. And I looked out the window and I was like, the wind was howling. And I was like, just stared out the window like 15 minutes with every reason not to go do it. And then I said, all right, it's time to go. You know I mean? <laughs> just go do it. And I put on my weight vest and went out for a run. And I think, you know, I could have just sat there and be like, I'm done. And I, I wonder like, cause were you always thinking about doing that? And it just kept on the can getting kicked down the road or, you know, like trying to do something of that nature. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, life, life was kind of in the way, right. uh, you know, especially, you know, I spent the four years in, in the army there on active duty initially. But, but when we saw this window of opportunity mm -hmm. uh, where we lived on the West coast, kind of like transitioning from the jobs we had in Washington state to the jobs we were going to take on in Pennsylvania, everything kind of lined up and I, I am just so thankful that we actually had the courage to take that first pedal stroke because that, that you're right, you know, and, and there was a lot of preparation before, you know, we had to buy gear. We had to make sure we were, uh, you know, mentally prepared, physically prepared. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of preparation we had to do before the trip and I'm so happy we were able to, uh, to see it through the actually, take that first pedal stroke and, and then continue. Yeah. And one, one thing I, I just wanted to say, Joe, that I think is important is the fact that people do have to deliberately uh, move out of their comfort zone in order to grow. You know, a lot of times we'll find ourselves at certain points in our life where things are pretty comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, like, Hey, we got a comfortable job, you know, uh, we don't have much stress right now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, maybe we're, we've attained the education we wanted to attain, you know, in terms of what our goals were there. And, uh, but you've got to find ways to move out of your comfort zone in order to develop resiliency. Because one thing is for sure is at some point in time, we're going to be tested again. And if we have just kind of gotten into this habit of being, hey, we're in our comfort zone, we're going to stay there. Uh, that that's not a healthy way to live one's life. That that's not a way to grow. So I, I think everybody, no matter what your age, you got to figure out uh, how could I place myself outside of my comfort zone, physically, mentally, whatever the case, spiritually, in, in order to grow in some way. Right. Yeah. Do the hard thing. Find something challenging. Right. And then yeah. I I was always uh, when you know I was always like focusing on doing something, you know, that, that I'm going to suck at. I, w- I want to find something that I'm going to suck at so I could get better. And just, um, and it's mostly for that resiliency, that adversity, that challenge, not necessarily because I want to do that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like one, one thing I do every year, I've been doing it now for the past eight years, I think. And it's really to honor fallen warriors too, but I do this 28 mile ruck march every year, hmm. uh, you know, with a um, 35 pound pack, you know, yeah. 28 miles uh, over challenging terrain. And yeah. every year when I finish it, I swear I'm never going to do it again <laughs> uh, because it is pretty tough. Right. And I, and I, and I do do it as, as fast as I could. Yeah. And, and I do it in memory of, of, of a, a fallen warrior. But um, I, I always say, I'm not going to do this again, but mm-hmm. I always end up doing it because first of all, uh, with this event, it keeps the memory of fall of that fallen warrior. You do it for alive, which I think is very powerful and very important. Plus it causes me to move out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and, and just put stress on myself. And, yeah. and, and I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, my buddy and I were talking about doing the Bataan death March Memorial and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it kind of COVID kind of happened. So <laughs> we're waiting for when we can do it again, but we're going to start training and doing that. Absolutely. Years. Yeah. So, you know, um, the book back to the book, there was a part in here um, and I highlighted a lot of stuff. I'm one of those guys who highlight things and write things down a lot in books. And one of the things I highlighted was uh, just in, uh, it's just going to be out of context. Of course, people are going to like, if you didn't read the book, you're not going to know exactly what it means, but you, you it said making decisions about whom to associate with sets the tone for the life one leads. And I thought that was just a profound statement because tying it to learning from others, you know, and, and, you know, like-minded goals, but maybe diverse perspectives. I mean, those are, that is, all those things are so important to growth and learning. And I thought, I just, when I highlighted it, I was like, oh, I definitely want to talk to John about that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think um, having people that we could rely on as mentors whether they be people older than us or younger than us, because I think mentorship is 360 degrees. You're not only mentored by people who are senior than you are, you could potentially be mentored by people who are junior than you because they may have experience in certain areas. But, but we are defined, I believe, by the people we hang out with and the people we associate with. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, now that doesn't mean we cannot help people who maybe have slightly different values and are struggling with certain things in their life, you know, perhaps in terms of homelessness or, or, or drugs or alcohol, or maybe just lack of, of, you know, what we would consider, you know, the right values to have, you know, we could certainly reach our hand down and help people like that. The trick is not to let people that don't have the same principles you have to drag yourself down to an unprincipled level. And that, that's mm-hmm. what I mean by that, that we have mm-hmm. to be careful about the people that, that uh, we are influenced by, I think right. is probably the best way to say it. And we have to try to be the positive influence for other people and then look for people that we could associate with who could be a positive influence for us. Yeah. And that's awesome. And, and I'm so glad I got to connect with you because, um, because of exactly what you just said. I mean, I've grown a lot just from the, the two conversations that we've had, uh, this one and the one previous and the connect, and I'm just, uh, feel blessed that we're connected on social media and we're friends now. So thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, Joe, you and the Llama Lounge team, could be really proud of the the content and the messages you put out. I, I get a lot from it. And, and I am just, I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, 
This is pretty cool that these leaders are sharing their experience with others, you know, through these podcasts, through the, the website, through the leadership blogs. So, so you are helping so many other people and, and, and thanks for doing that because that, that's important. That takes a lot of energy. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and, 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 and you and your, your uh, fellow Lama Lounge leaders do that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so just respecting your time, I, we, we usually wrap up these, uh, these episodes, what we call a leadership rapid fire. So okay. I'm going to ask you a series of just four questions and, uh, and um, just whatever's on your mind with, with those questions, however you want to answer. All right, answer. cool. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's however you want to interpret the question and, um, and, and your answer. So question number one, what is your favorite leadership trait? I would have to say, um, not my. I think the most important leadership trait is character. Awesome, awesome. All right. What is your favorite quote? It would have to be from Vince Lombardi: uh, "The greatest success is not in never falling, but it is in rising every time you fall." Mm. And that speaks to resiliency. You know, it's. The greatest success is not in never falling, but it is in rising every time you fall. Awesome. All right. What are some books you would recommend to an aspiring leader? Man, uh, uh, a lot of them. Um, a book I read quite a few years ago, The Leadership Engine by Noel Titchy. Uh, he speaks to uh, a teachable point of view and how important stories are that leaders need to share with others. Uh, there's the, uh, the leadership moment by Michael, uh, you who was, a he might still be a professor at, at, at Wharton business school. Um, Gus Lee, uh, wrote a book entitled courage, the backbone of leadership. He speaks to, uh, and I never thought of values in the way he explains it in the book, but he says there's, there's high values, medium values, and low values. Uh, you know, uh, an example of a low value would be racism, mm -hmm. you know, it might be cronyism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, an, exa an example of a medium value might be loyalty. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the army values, but he says that that's a medium value because you could be loyal to a guy like Hitler, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but he says there's, there's, uh, only a few, what he calls high values. Uh, and, and one of those high values would be integrity. And another high value would be courage. Mm. And then he says the, the habitual and continual use of integrity and courage develops character. So just, just a very good book that I've really gotten a lot from. Awesome. Awesome. And we're going to share those on, um, on the show notes as well. So awesome. Yeah. All right. And then the final question is, uh, because at the Lama Lounge, we're all about life, learning, and leadership, uh, we ask this question to everybody. How do you find your harmony between life, learning, and leadership? I'd say by, uh, by really trying to be myself, uh, by, and we talked about a little bit of this already, but really understanding what my values are and then working hard to be true to my values. Hmm. Uh, being true to my values, even in, in times when it's difficult to be true to my values. And, and, you know, I think that's so important. You have to understand what your core values are. You have to understand what your organizational values are. And, and, and I think some of the societal problems we're seeing right now is because some of these folks have, who have done such horrendous things to other human beings probably never really identified, truly identified what their core values are or what the, the organization, organizational values are. Uh, and, and I, I think that's so important in order to kind of be true to yourself, to identify those things. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. And, um, yeah. And man, like I said, John, thank you so much for coming on here and, um, all the gems of wisdom that you put out. And, um, I'd like to offer you an opportunity maybe to talk, to plug maybe some of the projects or maybe a website. Um, we're definitely going to share the book on the, um, on the show notes, and, um, and I know I, I, I like to continue to promote it because there's so much goodness in there, but um, anything that you got going on, um, we'd love to opportunity how, how people can connect with you and find you. Yeah. You know, one other thing I just want to say, Greg Stuby uh, wrote a leadership book. Greg is a uh, uh, retired uh, special forces NCO. He was a Sergeant first class, retired as a Sergeant first class, got wounded 
uh, in Afghanistan, a terrible wound. Uh, he spent uh, over 20 years in, in, in the army. And then, um, of course, you know, Jocko Willink has wrote many leadership books. One that I have just started getting into is, is an older book of his extreme ownership. So there, you know, I, I just want to put a plug in for those military veterans too, yeah. who have taken from their experience to, to write books. So, um, I wanted to mention yeah. that, but, but I'll tell you, Joe, I would love to stay in touch with you. Love to stay in touch with the Lama Lounge leadership team. Anything I could do to uh, help share the message that you all are putting out, I, I will certainly do my best to because I think it's a it's a positive and and much needed message that you guys are sending out there. Awesome, thank you. And, and if people want to um, find you, what would be some websites and um, ways to reach out? Yeah, a very easy website. Um, johngronski.com you know j-o-h-n-g-r-o-n-s-k-i johngronski.com i'm also very active on uh, linkedin on facebook and on twitter primarily Uh, do a little bit on on instagram and uh, but johngronski.com you'll be able to see links to those various other social media platforms if you go on my website i do have a leadership blog there uh, I do put out a free leadership email every every week, so people could just type in their email on my website and register for that leadership email that I like to send out there. And uh, would love to stay in touch with with anybody. You know, uh, my my email is easy: john at johngronski.com. If anybody hears this podcast and has a question and wants to email me, uh, please do. I mean, what my life purpose is is trying to help people become better and stronger leaders. So anything I could do to help with that effort, I'm, I'm all about. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Uh, it means a lot. And we'll definitely put all those links into the show notes so people can reach out to you. And I do, uh, I, I, I'm a subscri- uh, subscriber to your um, email and um, it's just awesome. I love seeing all the great stuff that comes through on there. So thank you for what you do as well. All right, Joe. Thank you. All really, right. really <laughs> great to be a guest on your, on your podcast. Awesome. podcast. Thank you. And to all our listeners, um, as always, you know, stay safe, um, stay healthy, and llamas are out. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Llama Lounge podcast. Be sure to visit the homepage for links to products and services related to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. See you next time.